0: share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and how food connects and
1: defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim. Hi, Lay. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I had a piece of Dutch apple pie for breakfast this morning, and so, you know, I'm living, basically I'm living the dream. I had a piece of pumpkin pie for breakfast, so Mm. I was pretty happy. Yum. If you missed our pie episode, don't forget to tune in, because we have a lot of fun facts about pies to share with you. But today, we're talking about something else. Yeah, since we're heading into the baking season,
0: we thought maybe Mm. we'd take
1: you on a little journey into the world
0: of butter. Mmm, butter. I thought that I would start the episode out with a quote from Elaine Kosrova's book, Butter, Rich History. Butter is uniformly taken for granted. It's common, after all. The girl next door, lovely but overlooked. And then she goes on to say, Butter's history is our history. And like so many foods, butter gives us this glimpse into religious, cultural, and societal events and implications throughout history. So I thought maybe we'd start this out with some fun butter facts. Butter fact number one. Butter's been around for about nine Thousand years. Wow. Yeah. And though nobody can really say how it came about, it has some folklore around it, much like cheese does. So, probably what happened is some herder put some fresh milk in a container, strapped it onto the pack animal, and butter was shaken into existence. And I always love those kinds of stories because you can see this herder pouring Mm -hmm. his milk into his animal skin or whatever jug that he was Mm -hmm. taken with and loading up his animal to go off into the hills to tend his herd and just being surprised by this
1: amazing, (laughs) delicious thing that wasn't there when he started out. Right. Not to interrupt, but completely to interrupt. So it's interesting you bring that up because... I was thumbing through my The Food History Reader by Ken Aballa earlier, and he was talking about early American pioneer folk who truly trekked across the country in search of their manifest destiny, go west young young people, about the American pioneer woman who would do something very similar. She would put her milk in a bag, she would probably put some, some dough in another bag, and the motion of the wagon, by the time they stopped for the night, she had dough ready to go, and she had butter ready to go as well. Yeah. So I think that picture of that person and the motion of life making butter is completely apt from the beginning. Mm.
0: You know what? That's super interesting, too, that you talk about that, the motion of life. One of the things that I also found was that the butter churn was actually a symbol of self-sufficiency. So if you were able to churn your butter, there was a self-sufficiency that you had. Yeah, like a a symbol of independence, too, as well. So cool. I know. So interesting. Fun fact number two is that Mm -hmm. butter was used for curative purposes, cosmetics. It was also very sacred because of that process of turning something into something else that was even better than the sum of its parts right yeah fun fact number three is that (laughs) butters that date back to 400 bc have been unearthed or unbogged as it were in ireland these butters are called bog butters I read a couple of different accounts on why these butter barrels were buried in the bogs. And one of them was that because of the temperatures of the bogs, it was used to preserve the butter. Another Mm. account was that the chemical reactions that were happening made the butter more palatable. So butter wasn't always made out of milk. There were some other fats that were involved with it, too. So it may have helped some of those other stronger fats. Mm, mm-hmm. to to become more palatable. I like this one too. Or it was a strategy to hide their food sources from invaders. I would totally I'm, do that if I, I had some good butter, I would so right? actually I probably do hide it from people who come over.
1: <laughs> I was going to say you got guests coming over, you got to hide the good butter you because do. you <laughs> know, folks don't always know what what, you know. I have like two rules in my house, basically don't drink the champagne And respect the butter. Respect the butter. Absolutely. Respect the butter. Yes. Because it's key to so much in the culinary world. But
0: bog butter. Yeah, bog butter. And the one that I love the most, just because I'm kind of silly this way, is (laughs) that they were actually offerings to pagan gods and mystical fairies of Irish folklore because they were terrified of fairies. Fairies would come and take their children. They would invade your body and you would become somebody else. I mean, what yeah. other food source is as magical? And again, one of those things about butter is that it's a way to preserve the nutritional value of milk. So Absolutely. there's that nutritive value to it, too. Yeah. And it's delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> it's so delicious. So delicious. Fun fact number, where am I on? Four,
1: probably. Four. four. Yeah, number four.
0: And this kind of is... It's a butter fun fact, but it also moves us into the realm of margarine. And this I didn't know. I didn't realize that margarine was as old as it is. The discovery of margarine is credited to Napoleon III. Really? Yes. So France was threatened with a butter shortage and a potential war with Prussia. So Mm -hmm. Napoleon offered a cash prize to whomever could Create a cheap, plentiful butter substitute. This happened in 1870. And the substitute was intended to feed soldiers in case they went to war with Prussia and mm-hmm. lower class citizens. So mm-hmm. obviously, they wouldn't be using up the butter that may become a shortage. Respect the butter, right. hide the butter. And it was a chemist by the name of hippolyte megamores or something to that effect. wow yeah can you imagine going through your life with a name like that but obviously people didn't yeah. do anyway so his creation was a combination of beef fat a fatty acid compound milk and salt pretty close to what it is today except that the animal fat has been replaced with vegetable oils
1: Oh, yeah. I had no idea that at any point it had included uh, beef fat or a a meat component. Because you associate margarine, or at least the margarine of today, with like vegetable oil and uh, vegetables as a vegetarian alternative to butter. Right. Yeah. So no, this was not a
0: vegetarian alternative. Okay. (laughs) Not at all.
1: Yeah, Not at all. (laughs)
0: No. The name of margarine comes from that fatty acid compound. That he used within it, and that was isolated by another French chemist, Michel Chavarelle, or something to that effect. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he isolated this fatty acid, and because of the look of it, it has these lustrous, pearly drops. He named it margarine, which uh,
1: references the Greek word for pearls, which is margarites. Oh, Yeah. Wow. I can't be the only one who doesn't really ever think about the origins of some things until you start thinking about or looking into it. Right. In three years from the time that he invented this,
0: Hippolyte was given an American patent and the production of margarine started in the United States. And people loved it, but not all people. (laughs) The dairy industry was really furious about this.
1: Mm-hmm, and um,
0: so they did all manner of things. One of them was, and you can see this in the early oleo margarine, when they had the mm-hmm. little annatto beads that you would have to massage into it. So they, what? yeah, be, because it was margarine is white. So part of what the dairy industry required was that it was not colored yellow, so that you could have a differentiation on the shelf between margarine and butter. And they went so far as even to uh, say that it had to be dyed, if it was going to be dyed, it had to be
1: dyed colors like pink or blue, (laughs) but no yellow. We we could have had blue margarine all this time, but we don't. But we don't. Yeah. Because people didn't like that. (laughs) I mean, we have other blue foods. We could have but I can imagine how it would be a little off-putting. Blue raspberry doesn't count. No, I guess not. I was thinking blueberries. They're purple. Oh, that's true. I guess we don't have blue foods. We don't do have we? any blue
0: foods. Not that I can think of. If you guys know of any blue foods, let us know.
1: Yeah, seriously. Specifically true blue, not purple right. and not colored blue food. Right. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, now that I think about it, I'm having a hard time thinking of anything like that. Yeah. I can't think of anything either. So anyway.
0: Okay. Angry, angry Angry dairy industry that actually (laughs) became militant. And by 1885, these dairy militants had marched onto the Capitol, and they had convinced Congress to pass the Margarine Act of 1886. Of course they did. (laughs) And this act imposed a two cent per pound tax on margarine, which.
1: Ooh, that adds up.
0: It does add up, which also leads to organized crime syndicates selling counterfeit butter. This is the best thing I've heard all day. Right. And they were called the Oleo Gang.
1: Oh, no, they yes. weren't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Man. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Hey, hey listeners, if you are a member of a food-based crime syndicate, I'd love to hear from you. Like a current one. There's got to be something somewhere. Mm-hmm. Oh man. If you oh, if okay. you were
0: to create a food-based oh. underground organized yes.
1: criminal food syndicate, what would it be called? <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine how you keep a straight face while like <laughs> being in a crime syndicate centered around margarine. Yeah. I got your goods. I got the mutts. I got the you, butter. You, you, got, you got the toast. <laughs> I got this, I got the stuff. All right. Yeah. That was a fun fact. Yeah. That was the
0: start of the battle between mm-hmm. the butter and the margarine. There's so much more butter. that's so fascinating about that. But I digress. We'll go back to butter now. The first ever student protest happened here in the States at Harvard University. And it was called the Great Butter Rebellion. And (laughs) it occurred, I think it was like 1766 at Harvard. And it occurred because the students were being served rancid butter. And as we know, y'all don't mess with college students' food. (laughs) I mean. No, you don't. You just don't. (laughs) And I love their protest chant. Behold, our butter stinketh. Give us, therefore, butter that stinketh not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's fabulous. Why have we given that up? I I would make signs for that protest. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Julia Child would be proud. So, Harvard University, you said eighteen sixty six? No, seventeen sixty six. So before we were even the United States. Yes. So civil unrest is a very long-standing American tradition. Yes. But I mean, who wouldn't rub rebu- I mean, it goes to show, I think that this example really does go to show how important we feel our food is to us. Yes. Because I feel that sometimes talking to people about food in general, sometimes folks seem mystified. Like, why would we talk about that? Mm-hmm. But it's important it because is. we really care about it more than maybe we admit to ourselves that we do. Yeah. If you're a Harvard University student ready to kind of throw down arms over the smell of your butter mm-hmm. that says something it does for <laughs> sure and then
0: my last fun butter fact mm. goes back to that sacred context of butter this one I found fascinating butter has a long history of being used in sacred sculptures
1: it was mm. first
0: introduced into the Buddhist practice in 1641 CE and then it spread to Tibet India, and then beyond. And we still have butter carving in the States here. I know for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. I can tell you a lot more about butter sculptures. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. So I I have so much to say about all of this stuff because I went down a butter rabbit hole (laughs) when getting ready to talk about, about butter. So I want to talk about butter sculptures. So as you noted, Tibetan butter sculpture is an ancient practice. Monks use butter specifically from female yaks to form torma. And these are really intricate, colorful figures in a wide variety of sizes, from very small to very large, used in Buddhist rituals and as offerings. The practice is said to have started with sculptures of frozen butter being used in lieu of flowers as a worshipful offering. So the earliest European reference to butter sculpture comes from about 1536, when Bartholomew Scappi, who was the chef to then Pope Pius V, composed a nine-course feast with these incredibly elaborate centerpieces of carved foods. And the butter sculptures specifically mentioned by him, and I can tell you want to tell me something, included an elephant with a palanquin, Hercules struggling with a lion, and a Moor on a camel. What wow. do you want to tell me about Bartolomeo Scappy? I just got his book, The Opera, so that was just a cool, fun fact to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. awesome! I read isn't it great? S- yeah, <laughs> isn't it great when real life collides with real life? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it is. Okay, so another interesting component of the butter sculpture is the butter lamb, which is a traditional butter sculpture that accompanies the Easter meal for uh, folks who observe Russian, Slovenian, and um, Polish Catholic holidays. And it's where butter is shaped into a lamb, either by hand or a lamb-shaped mold. And then they use peppercorns or dried cloves for the eyes. Mm. There's a red ribbon tied around it. Sometimes there's a, a flag that accompanies the sculpture. It's a particular tradition in Buffalo, New York, made famous by Broadway Market, who has kept the Polish tradition alive for decades. Many people go to the famous Broadway market to buy butter lambs, and it's part of an annual tradition signifying the start of Easter and spring. Another fun
0: fact that I didn't talk about was that butter is seasonal, much like all of our produce that we don't realize is seasonal, but typically butter was made in the spring, when mm-hmm. the um, lambs were just being born, the, the mothers had more milk. And anyway, so I imagine that the butter lamb was made out of butter because it was that symbol
1: of spring and renewal. And so that's interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm also trying to imagine being the person that cuts into the butter lamb. Wouldn't that feel a little sacrificial? And maybe that's the point as well of, you know, that, that kind of all the rites of spring and rebirth and renewal and 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 it, it probably does evoke kind of that sacrificial quality
0: well, yeah and i don't know if this was specifically around spring but you you not you at one point in time <laughs> blood was put onto the lentils of homes yeah, as for, a for passover exactly as a, mm-hmm. a sacrificial symbol so maybe you're right i i could definitely see
1: that correlation yeah i want to get a butter lamb now for a spring dinner, Easter dinner. Yeah. So molded butter as an artwork really made its debut in the United States at the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, when farmer Carolyn Shaw Brooks from Helena, Arkansas, debuted "Dreaming Iolanthe, a bas relief bust of a woman that she modeled in butter. Brooks taught herself how to sculpt butter. To make her farm work more interesting. And she actually began selling her sculptures to local folks that basically bought butter from her. So she started to gain this reputation for doing artful things with butter. Now, artwork in butter, this isn't the moment it all started. For decades, centuries, eons, milkmaids would put butter into decorative pats and sell them. So this kind of thing wasn't that unusual. But... To do it on a larger fine art scale, this was new and pretty inventive. She entered Dreaming Iolanthe into smaller fairs and exhibitions, really starting in 1873. But after that 1876 centennial exhibition, she went on to formally study sculpture and ended up working in marble. She was a very successful sculptor. So she went from butter to marble in fine art, which I think is really cool. She's not the first female artist to kind of transcend what is considered to be like a home economic into fine art. But I found that one particularly interesting. That's
0: fascinating. That is very interesting. That transition from something, like you said, that is a home ec based into something that is an art. Because that would have been considered a craft.
1: Yes. But she did move into an art. She, She made it an art. And she made busts of Queen Isabella and Christopher Columbus for the 1893 Chicago Columban Exhibition, and by that time, there were other butter sculptists around. So I would grant her the title of grandmother of butter sculpting. She definitely kind of kicked off this view of large-scale butter art sculpture. So butter sculpting really had its best days from about 1890 to 1930. The American dairy industry, as noted earlier, Really promoted butter sculpting because it was a way to promote butter over its oleo margarine competition. Uh, frankly, anyone who's ever worked with butter or margarine and in, in baking or really in any other kind of food crafting can understand where we're coming from. Butter holds its shape better; you can mold it, you can sculpt it. Margarine a lot softer consistency makes it fantastically spreadable mm-hmm. but you're not going to you're not going to really have a sculpture out of oleo margin unfortunately so this now segues into butter cows so the first butter cow sculpture and this is a large scale like almost life size if not actually life size sculpture Typically of a cow and a calf, or like a cow and a calf and a farmer. That first appeared at the Ohio State Fair in 1903, as sculpted by A.T. Shelton and Company, and it became a staple of the Ohio State Fair thereafter. In fact, I've seen the butter cow repeatedly at the Ohio State Fair when I lived in Columbus, Ohio. (coughs) The tradition caught on at the Iowa State Fair in 1911, and its popularity spread from there throughout the Midwest. So Butter Cow is now pretty much a feature sculpture and tradition at state fairs in Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and I'm, I'm sure there are others. I don't remember seeing it at the Washington State Fair in Puyallup, but I'm going to keep an eye out for it see if I can find one now. The Minnesota State Fair has a really interesting butter sculpture twist. So rather than a Butter Cow, they decided that they were going to do things different in Minnesota, And so their fair features butter carvings of the 12 finalists of the Princess K of the Milky Way competition. So the finalists are chosen from young Minnesotan women between the ages of 16 and 23 and to be dairy princesses. And for each day of the 12-day fair, one of the finalists poses for the sculptor for about six hours to have her likeness carved from a 90-pound block of butter. Wow. Yeah. If somebody would... Carve me from a ninety-pound block of butter. I
0: think that I might—is that—that's a way to lose some weight, right?
1: (laughs) Unless you, you, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So throughout the fair, these likenesses are being carved. People can can watch the carving happen. The princesses have to pose in a chilled room. So if you can imagine six hours of sitting in a chilled room to have your likeness carved out of butter, then you know what it's like to be a Minnesota dairy princess. And then once the carving is complete, they're displayed for the remainder of the fair, and at its closing, each dairy princess can take her sculpture home. Hmm. Well, yeah. What would you do with you, 90 pounds of what you? What would you do with 90 pounds, pounds of your likeness and butter? <laughs> I really want to know, because I can... I mean... This now transcends cutting into a butter lamb, right? <laughs> yes, <This> now <laughs> yes. almost verges on a very. I mean, you you can't say cannibalism because, clue, you're not eating human flesh. And yes, I'm going there, but I mean, can you imagine trying to like? Well, actually, what what's funny about that is in the 1920s, likenesses of then Prince of Wales were exhibited in Canada. That was George the Eighth who abdicated his throne. And somebody noted that just an ear off of the sculpture would keep his family in butter for a year. Wow. Yeah, it was a very controversial sculpture, (laughs) ended up being so, because some of the tableaus that were carved in butter featured First Nation people, from what I understand, like kneeling at the feet of the Prince of Wales. And so there was a lot of critique about why are we depicting First Nation people in this way. If they're important to Canada, and they are, then why aren't we giving them their own tableau, their own representation that's not one quite this colonial, frankly. So that's pretty much what I have on sculpture. It's not as popular as it used to be. It's still a a county fair favorite. We don't really do world exhibitions anymore which is a pity Mm. so it's unlikely that we're going to see butter sculptures really outside the realm of the state fair or at a fancy dinner that was something actually that kind of came up too in my research Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting so as far as compound butter goes and sort of in this realm of molded or or special fancy butters the French really had a, a big thing for perfumed butter back in the late 17th century, which is effectively a compound butter, but was described historically as layers of butter pressed with flowers, And those were molded and served at fancy dinners. Mm. That would be beautiful. Wouldn't that be gorgeous? Mm -hmm. And I imagine, especially with a baguette style bread, that would be just delicious and floral and tasty. I, I really love the French trend of perfuming things. So before I get to my weird fun fact for the day, I wanted to talk about the Norwegian Butter Crisis because I seem to have a knack for finding really odd, unusual (laughs) things that happen. (laughs) And this is a modern thing that I hadn't heard about, but now I know. Are you familiar with the Norwegian Butter Crisis? No. Okay, so here we go. So there were heavy rains in Norway in the summer of 2011 that really affected cow grazing and pasteurizing. And so therefore, they had a reduced milk production, which led to a shortage of butter, especially at the time of year when butter demand was steadily increasing. Norway has a lot of tradition of butter in their holiday foods. Mm -hmm. So by mid-December 2011, for example, a package of imported butter cost about 50 U.S. dollars. Wow. Yeah, something that we're all accustomed to buying for less than five, I would say, in the States. Mm kind of depends on if you're going for a fancier butter or not. So people ended up doing all kinds of things in response to this crisis. One Norwegian newspaper was offering a half kilogram of butter with new subscriptions to entice people to subscribe. Wow. There were reports of students auctioning off butter to raise funds for graduation parties.
0: I wonder where they got the butter.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, or Swedes offering to drive butter over the border oh. as a sort of like a, I will deliver you butter mm-hmm. for for about 57 USD. I'll bring you butter. And that um, butter was being kept in duty-free stores at the Danish border. There was massive sales of butter in Sweden and Denmark because of this Norwegian butter crisis with Norwegians driving over the border to buy butter. That does not surprise me because they do, like you
0: said, they have such a huge culture in butter. Another one of the things that I was reading is that because those Scandinavian areas aren't really set up for any kind of an intensive agricultural crop, what they did rely on was milk from their cattle or goats. So it's a very long history in milk products and butter, so... It
1: doesn't surprise me that they would spend $50 for a package of butter, especially during the holidays. There was a note, too, about how Norway dairy industry is practically a monopoly, and I don't really truly understand the politics of it, so I don't want to wade too heavily as an expert on this. But the fact that they had massive tariffs on butter from other countries in order to protect the Norwegian milk industry, that ended up being a problem because... If all your affordable butter is coming from one source and that source isn't able to produce, then you're going to run into shortages. So somewhat like the oleo gang in a way, not because of crime, but the sort of the sense of supply and demand and how important it is for people to have access to the foods that they care about. Right. And that when that supply chain is interrupted, things happen. Right. You know? Yeah. You get, you get Swedes bringing you butter. Or you get the oleo gang. Or you get the oil gang at your your door. (laughs) So a Kim fun fact. So butter can come from basically almost any milk source. I I don't think there are actually a whole lot of milks that you cannot create butter from. And if you're interested in how to create butter, come to asweeat.com and we will post some information about how you make butter and just some interesting backstory that we were not able to talk about right now. Because you can't really talk about butter without talking about milk. And we've had history of butter being made from a lot of milks other than cow milk, which is I think most common today, although there are exceptions. I mean, some of those milks include yak, sheep, goat, very much primarily the earliest sources of butter, but reindeer as well, water buffalo. And somewhat disgustingly, human milk. I knew you were going to say that! (laughs) So there are recipes online. You can find them for yourself. But it got me wondering about the platypus. A mammal known to provide milk. An aquatic mammal known to provide milk. But what I learned and this is your fun fact for the day (laughs) is that while platypuses do produce milk, they lack teats. Therefore, it's kind of impossible to milk them. What actually happens is that milk is released from their pores and pools into grooves on the abdomen. And that's how the new, a newborn platypus nurses from its mother. For those out there who were hopeful for platypus butter, I regret to tell you that you're probably going to miss out on that one. I'm
0: so sorry. I think I'll stick with my cow, goat and sheep milk butters.
1: Okay, so I think I'm going to go make some buttered popcorn. That sounds really good right now. That sounds amazing. We might have to go grab some Prosecco to go along with ours.
0: But wait, wait, before we Mm. overindulge in butter and Prosecco, what can our (laughs) listeners expect next week?
1: Oh, well, you know, talking about Prosecco reminds me, we're going to talk about grogs and nogs. So we're getting ready to wrap up this year. So we're going to talk about our favorite Drinks and all the obscure fun facts that we tend to find about these things. So I hope that you'll lift a pint with us and join us for grogs and nogs. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't
0: miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please.
1: And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh,
0: and one more thing, we also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.